We are in Joshua 13 to 21. We got a lot of chapters here. But I have good news for you guys. I am not going to go verse by verse through this, okay? But there is some really good stuff that's in it that we're going to cover, okay? The very first verse says this. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. So, we, we kind of giggle at that, but it kind of reaffirms the fact that Scripture is truthful. He was old and advanced in years, and he is acknowledging that with Joshua. God knows what goes on with this. He knows how when we get old, he knows when we get up, and we, he knows every hair on our head and stuff, so he knows all about us. And so he's basically letting Joshua know that his uh, mission has been accomplished. They have conquered and um, possessed and gotten into the land, but there's still some more work to do. There remains very, yet very much land to possess. And the word possess means to, to rule it, to be able to walk freely among us and stuff, and just to really get rid of all the, the leftover um, people who are against God and um, not going to be living at peace. So the rest of chapter 13 goes on and just reminds us that some of that land was distributed under Moses before they crossed over the Jordan. So the land east of the Jordan, east of the Jordan, um, is all been settled. And remember, Moses made a deal with them. They wanted to kind of hang out there. That was good and everything. And Moses said, you can leave your, your, your herds here and whatever and your children and stuff, and you can, set, you can be there. But the fighting men need to come over and cross over and help the rest of the Israelites to conquer their land. And once all that is done, then they can go back over the Jordan. Uh, you know what? You, do you wonder how they got back over the Jordan? Anyone think about that? How'd they do that? Anyways, they did it. <laughs> Maybe upstream, I don't know, but um, boats, who knows. But they got back over on the other side of the Jordan. And also, at the very end of 13, it says this, the last verse in 33. Um, talks about these inheritances. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance just as he had said to them. So that's an interesting thing. They're all going to get some land and all settle in some land, except the Levites are not going to have any land. They, we know from Numbers 18, 20, that they were Aaron's descendants and they were in the priestly line. But we're going to revisit that later on too. So now we're going to skip 14 and jump over to 15. Because Moses has passed away, he did some of the fighting and the distribution of some of that land. Now, the rest of it is going to be all done by Joshua. He's going to distribute it, the land, to the rest of the tribes. And with inheritance, it's traditional, and back here it was pretty much the law, that the inheritance, the bulk of it, whatever, would go to the firstborn son. But this list starts out, Joshua starts out giving it to Judah, Judah, he was the fourth son. So what happened with that? Um, Judah is actually the most important tribe now. But being the fourth son, 
He now has prominence because of his brother's sins. Brother number one, two, and three. Reuben, the oldest, which should have gotten, you know, the, the honor of being the firstborn. In Genesis 35, 22, we know the story how Reuben dishonored his father by sleeping with his father's concubine. You don't do those things. Now, I know we don't have concubines today. It was kind of a different culture. But what it meant, what it symbolized was Reuben usurping the authority that his father had. Okay? So he gets knocked out of the primo spot. And then later on, or before that in Genesis 34, I guess, Simeon and Levi... Remember, they got into trouble with their sister, you know, and the Shechemites, the Shechemite guy who raped their sister, and then they make this big, you know, we want, I really want to marry your sister, and they fooled him and said, well, if you marry our sister, you have to all get circumcised, remember, and then they went in and they massacred all of them. And Jacob says, now my name has been bloodstained or whatever. So they got knocked out of the running. That's two and three. So then the fourth son was Judah. And in Genesis 59, 8 to 12, um, when uh, Jacob is on his deathbed, the end of his years there, and he's bringing in his sons to give them their inheritance and tell that beautiful chapter on how he acknowledges his sons. He looks at Judah, and he basically gives Judah the right to rule. The scepter won't be taken from his hand. So Judah's line... His descendants, there were many, many kings in that. We have in that line some David and Solomon and Joshua. And eventually we get to who? The king of kings, Messiah. Jesus is in the, in the line of Judah, um, the lion. So that takes pretty much care of chapter 15. Chapter 16 and 17 are dealing with Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh, they were the sons of Joseph. Joseph was um, uh, Lydia and Rebecca. So Joseph was at the end, and she, there were two sons there, Benjamin and Joseph. Joseph was the one that the brothers hated, sold him into slavery, remember, and he went to Egypt, blah, 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 and all the history of all that. But then at the end, you know, he basically saves the nation because they go to Egypt um, during the famine, and Joseph rose into power. Joseph had two, two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob blessed Joseph by telling him, I am going to make your two sons my sons, which meant that they were now in the line of inheritance of those, of those uh, Jacob's sons. So that chapter 16 and 17 gets into talking about that. And it's very interesting also in this line of Manasseh, he had no boys, no sons. Oh no, now what happens? His daughters back in Numbers 27 go to Moses at the time and said, should our father's name be forgotten because he has no sons? And they appealed to Moses and Moses talked to God about it. And God told him, no, give these girls, you know, um, equivalent to women's lib right there, equality right there in the word of God, right? Don't let me, anyone tell you this book's against women. So there's a major portion of the land was even given to these five daughters. Um, they, uh, in 1730 and 6, um, I think they're talking about clearing the land and all that kind of stuff. Anyways, they got a big hunk of land. 
And when they go to Joshua and they tell him, you know, do you remember what happened here and there and everything? And, and it said, it's in verse 4b of 17, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. It was written down. It's, it's a statement on the written word of God is binding. It's powerful. These are just words. You might even think that they're historical words, but that's not all there is to it. There's a lot to it that we can pull from that is a living, breathing word of God. And we're going to pull out some stuff from this that's going to apply to us today. So hang on. We're just distributing the land right now. But the word of God is binding. Chapter 18, we get into now the congregation... um, Verse 1, then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. Now, there was a question in your book that I think was just a poorly worded question. I think it sent us on a rabbit trail we didn't need to go on. I don't know if it was some verse that they left out to to do. But anyways, we probably spent more time on that than we needed to do. It It was a nothing burger verse. But what we want to know about Shiloh is this. The tent um, of meeting, you know, the people carried it all over the wilderness and they would, you know, all the 40 years packing up. And then when they crossed over, it was at Gilgal for the seven years that they were fighting in the land. At this point in chapter 18, we now find out that it has been packed up again and moved to Shiloh. Shiloh was on more of a a rise, so it was easily defended. It was a a big enough area so the people could come and for their feasts and stuff, you know, the millions of people that were there could come to the, the tent of meeting. It was there for 369 years in Shiloh. So it has some probably permanent structures there, like maybe steps and things like that. The Philistines come and get it later and in with the ark and stuff. But that's it's, it's going to be there for a couple centuries right now. And it was located between Ai and Gerizim in that high country. That's all we need to pull out of that verse there with that. But the rest of 18 and 19 is distributing the remaining seven tribes. Um, so, Joshua's telling them, when are we going to get onto it? And it's almost like his leadership is, he's fading out a little bit from the leadership, and he's looking at these, uh, the warriors, the men of Israel, and saying, when are you guys going to get on with it? Okay, get some people out there, Three people from your tribes, go out there, go through the land, write a description of the land. In other words, do a survey. Do a survey, mark it out, write it down, all of the land, what, how, how it goes, what it does and everything, and, and plot it out. What a task that would have been done. I mean, today surveyors have those things and they mark, and I don't know what they've got now. I, I, I don't know what kind of tools they had to do this, but they did it. They surveyed the land, they had a written documentation of the description of the land, and they brought it back to Joshua in the tent of Shiloh. So they had a deed, everything was written down. Now, how are they going to distribute all this land? I can imagine. We know about boundary lines, don't we? We know about encroachments, encroachments, and who's going to inherit what, 
and that looks better, and why'd they get this, and everything like that. It can be, inheritances can be really, really ugly. And if you don't, person doesn't have a will when they die, it's really, really ugly. And even if they do, it still gets contested many times. But God knows our hearts, and he told Joshua that we're going to cast lots. Now, it's not gambling. In this era right now, they're casting lots. He had the rest of the land, seven pieces of property. He cast lots, and God decided. God decided. And no one's going to, everyone was there witnessing how how the lots were cast. And it's like, okay, you came up with that one, or however they did it. We're looking at this land. Okay, looking at effort. We're looking at this piece of property, this piece of property. Okay, cast the lots. Hey, you won. Yay. I mean, a big auction. I don't know what it would be like. But anyways, probably the people were pretty happy about it, I would think. But anyways, that's how they distributed the rest of the land. And then in 19, um, the end of 19, in verse 49, the people were thinking of Joshua. And they finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritance. And the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. And he went up and he built um, a city and settled it or rebuilt it and settled there. And so they thought of Joshua. Um, Joshua, at this point, was nearing 90 years old. And when we look back on chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, God had told Joshua Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Now, this is before he actually did it. But we know from God, this is past tense, it was a done deal. And now Joshua can go back and he looks at this. Every place that your sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. And it goes on to describe it and everything. No man, in verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, and I will not leave you, forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause the people to inherit the land that I swore to the fathers to give them. And the only thing he needed to do was to be strong and courageous, to keep the law, to not turn to the left of it, to not turn to the right. Verse 8, I'll just take it from there. This book of law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, and so that you can be careful to do according as written, and then you will go make your way prosperous, and you will have a good, you will have good success. But I have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. God is with you. So definitely at this point in his life, he has done that. He was strong and courageous. He went in there and he fought these battles, and the land was now at rest from war. So the last verse there in 19... 51 says, so they finished dividing the land. But they didn't, they were supposed to now go and possess it. They needed to possess the land. Possessing the land means to rule it. And they needed to do this without depending on Joshua as their leader. He's going to be hanging out in his little town in Ephraim there, you know, hanging out with his baby goats and kids and stuff probably and grandkids or whatever he's going to do and he's not going to do all the military stuff they were left to go ahead and do it and we because we've read it we know they do a terrible job of it but the work was not complete 
So now I'm going to jump back to 14. Joshua was a great, wonderful guy. He kind of lived in the shadow of Moses. If we looked at all the saints in, in Scripture, all the characters, they were Moses was really one of the ones that were really up there. Joshua, we maybe wouldn't have forgotten about him if a book wasn't written in his name. He kind of lived in a little bit of the shadow of Moses. But there was someone who lived in the shadow of Joshua, and that was Caleb. Caleb fought side by side with Joshua for many years. So let's take a little peek at this man, because what we can learn from him in contrast to the other men around is going to kind of help us have the segue going into Judges, which isn't next week, but it's the following week. Did you guys know that Joshua was not Jewish? He was not Jewish. 14.6 says this. Fourteen verse six. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal and said, The son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, is Caleb. The son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. So what do we know about the Kenizzites? If we go back to the original promise that God made with, with Abraham in Genesis 15, God is telling Abraham that he's going to give this land to them, this land that is now inhabited by all these ites. And one of those groups of ites were the Kenizzites. The Kenizzites were the bad people in the land of the promised land. So they occupied the land, one of the groups of people that occupied the land. How some of them came to live in Egypt... Um, as slaves, because we know when Moses pulled the people out, it wasn't just the Israel, the Jews that came out. There were other people that came with them from other uh, nations, okay? So Caleb was in that group. Somewhere along the road, along the way, maybe under captivity as, as slaves in Egypt, Caleb's father became a, identified with the Jews. And he started to believe in their religion and in their God. And so did Caleb. That's the first time we meet Caleb then is um, he's 40 years old and the people have moved out of Egypt two years after they've left Egypt and they're getting ready or they thought they were getting ready to go into the promised land. And Moses sends some spies in, 12 spies. Caleb is one of those spies. Caleb goes into the land and he spies out Hebron. He spies out this piece of land that he's now asking Joshua for. And this piece of land, this, this, this area of Hebron, is, is a sacred Jewish land pretty much. It's where Abraham purchased the field to buy Sarah. It is the piece of land that Abraham bought chunk of promised land that way back Abraham actually got to own. He, bought, he buried Sarah there, and then later he's buried there, and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Joseph is brought back there and buried there. So maybe Caleb kind of had a curiosity about that land. I don't know. We don't know, really know how the spies, the 12 spies, when they first went in to you know, check out the land, we don't know how they, who went where, whatever, but we know this from looking at the scripture is that Caleb went to Hebron. Maybe to see the grave, maybe to do something, we, we don't know. But he was there. 
So it was a Jewish sacred place. We also know from Numbers 13 and Numbers 28 that the giants lived there. The Nephilim, the descendants of Anak. Anak, now when they're Nephilim and giants, there's a bunch of different things. We're not going to get into any of that. But they were kind of heroes of old and men of renown. Talks about them in Genesis 6-4. They were a type of people for whether what they looked like or what they did or I don't know that the other 10 of the spies were petrified of them and totally defeated and had doubt and were discouraged and there was no way in the world we're going to take this land. Caleb and um, Joshua were the only two who said, no, we can do this. We, we can do this. And then, and then we bring back the port of the, what they found in the land and the people are, t- the 10 spies are telling them about the the big, the giants there, and they're going to kill us, and we're just like grasshoppers, and they had all the people just fearful, and and Joshua and Jake, Caleb are saying, no, we can do this, remember, and they were going to stone them, the people were going to stone them because of that, Caleb had so much confidence that God could do this, that he goes to Moses, and he says, when I, when we, when we conquer the land, I want that peace, is that faith? So you just wonder, 40 years. Ever, that's a long escrow to close, isn't it? 40 years, wandering around, got my eye on that land. I know what it's all about. Determined, we're going to do this. We're going to take that land. Um, so they are wandering 40 years because they didn't listen to Caleb and Joseph. Caleb had total faith in God. Numbers 14, 20. This is when the people are grumbling and everything, and God's getting really fed up with them. He's going to, like, open up the land and swallow them up again. And Moses is saying, no, no, don't do that. Then the Lord said, and then the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. You know, Moses goes to bat for them. Please don't do this. But truly as I live, God says, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory... And my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. But, in verse 24, my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land I will bring into the land into which he went, his descendants shall possess it. God himself is telling Caleb, or telling Moses about Caleb, because he has a different spirit. Well, I tried looking that up. What's a different spirit? Is Holy Spirit, I, I, the only thing I think we can pick out of this is the spirit is the part of a person that responds to God. Caleb had such a belief, you know, he wasn't Jewish. He would just witness this stuff. He remembered all the stuff done in Egypt. He remembered all the things that God had done. He had an awesomeness of God in nature and revelation. And he had gone to Hebron and seen the land and been where the the burial place of these patriarchs were. And he believed God and his word that he would do. He had a different spirit about him. We know in verse, chapter 14, verse 9, a word that we pulled out of our question, that Caleb wholly followed the Lord, 
the God of Israel, wholeheartedly, wholly followed, which means with all of your heart. Nothing else is more important than God. We love our kids. We love our grandkids. We love our husbands. We, you know, all this stuff. But you know what? God is is preeminent up there. Holy followed him and believed in him. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Jesus says. Jesus says, the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus said. The greatest thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. This was Caleb. He was old, but he wasn't finished working for God or serving God. He knew the job wasn't finished yet. He wasn't going to retire. We know in chapter 15, 14 to 15, that he gets his land. 15, 14 to 15, and Caleb drove out. Um, from his land, the three sons of Anak, shish, I didn't write those down, but anyway, the three sons of Anak, who, those three names are also in numbers. So he gets in there and he clears them out. Hey, this is my land now, God. And he, whatever he did, he got the, you know, the giants of renown, whatever, out of there. And he lived in the land. He never grew weary or he never lost heart and he never gave up, but he fixed his eyes on the prize. Two cities were in Hebron. There was Hebron and Debur. And Caleb says, okay, I've got Hebron. I'm living here. And whoever can go in there and conquer um, Debur can have my daughter. So, I mean, that must have just have been a fun kind of thing. He's got his daughter living next door and all the grandkids running around. Funsville. The other tribes did not clear out the land like Caleb did. And we're going to run into their problems that they had. Why not? Possibly they were tired of fighting. They were kind of comfortable or whatever. Um, They settled. They did not live wholeheartedly for God because they were told to do this. But if they can skid by and just kind of do this and they don't have to do this, they become complacent. Your commentary used that word complacent, and it's a good word. I looked it up. The American Heritage Dictionary, complacent. Satisfied with current situation and unconcerned with changing it, often to the point of smugness or self-satisfaction. Merriam-Webster Dictionary, Complacent, marked by self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. That's an interesting twist on it. The Cambridge Dictionary says, complacent, feeling so satisfied with one's own abilities or situation that one feels they do not need to try. And finally, the Free Dictionary You guys ever take a look at that one? Got one word for complacent. Unbothered. Pooh Bear would not like that one. Unbothered. Unbothered. So, 
I wonder. <laughs> Complacency. Is that what happened to them? They felt the need. They were satisfied with whatever they had there and they didn't need. They didn't have Joshua leading them on or whatever. But what is, let's wrap it up here. The last part, chapters 20 and 21. God knew that the people would fail and not live wholeheartedly for him. He knew that. He knew that. He knew that because they didn't, weren't like Jacob and Joshua going in there and living wholeheartedly for him and becoming complacent, that the land would have trouble and the land would suffer. Romans 8, 20 uh, talks about how the land, the creation is, is in bondage to corruption. The land would suffer. There'd be crime. There'd be unrest. It was, they, they were living in disobedience. They weren't doing what God had told them to do. And so because of this, because the land was going to have these problems, God's going to set up, because he always is taking care of us, these cities of, these special cities. And one of them was a city of refuge. So we have in chapter 20, that the description of six cities that were set up, and they were taken from the 48 cities or the, the cities that belonged to the Levites. So in other words, the Levites or priest was at each one of these cities. Three on each side of the Jordan. God gives specific commands about these cities of refuge. And again, he documents it in Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Exodus that they're going to have these cities. He knows. He knows. Back then in this primitive world, um, before they really had laws and and before government, um, it was an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. You killed my donkey, I'm going to go kill your donkey. You did this, I'm going to get you back. And it's eye for eye. It's like a human nature thing. You see this with kids, right? Well, he took mine, so I took his. Or you scribble on my paper, I scribble on his paper. You know, it's kind of who we are. So it was very primitive. And because this would happen, if there was a death, or an ac- purposefully or accidentally, the family member of the person who was killed, they would appoint an avenger of blood. Could you imagine being the representative in your family as the avenger of blood? I bet you they'd have a lot of volunteers for that in some of these families, right? Please, Dad, please, let me go get them. Please, please. So it was a very barbaric situation that was there. So these cities of refuge were set up that if somebody murdered somebody, intentionally or not, they could flee to one of these cities, and they were distributed so you could get to them, okay? Why did God do this? Because people are made in the image of God, and we have value. We have value. That's one of the reasons there's capital punishment that was set up in Genesis 9 and Exodus 21, because if someone does intentionally murder somebody, that is, that's an offense. That's a crime. And so there's going to be um, punishment for that. Um, no one is put to death for a death by an accident, though, okay? Innocent people are to remain safe. And they can get to one of these cities, um, and they can stay there safely if they are went to trial and they are innocent of it. They can live there safely until the high priest who said, okay, I've heard your case, whatever, you're innocent. If he died, when he dies, they can go back home. Now, what happens after that? I don't know. But 
I would think that if someone intentionally murders somebody, they're probably not going to go to a city of refuge, right? Because they're going to get tried, and it's going to be probably proven that, no, you really did this. Then they're going to, whatever they need to do, the avenger can come in or overtake them, and they'd be slain. The Israelites had to maintain all the roads to the cities of refuge. They had to have bridges to get to them. They had to have clear signs, city of refuge this way or whatever, clearly marked. So someone who was fleeing could, could get there clearly. Um, so we have road maintenance early on there. Okay. If the manslayer did not flee to one of these cities, then there was no hope for them. We have a picture of Christ in this and um, can kind of play with that a little bit if you want. The other descendant or the other, the Levi's, I'm going to close with this. The Levi's were scattered around. They were given cities within other tribes They were given cities and some pasture land, and they were scattered. Why were they scattered? Levi and Simeon, Simeon, they had that massacre, right? And God told in Genesis 34 at that time, Levi, um, because you did this, I'm going to, in Genesis 49, Jacob said that he would scatter and disperse them, and they would have no inheritance. So the Levites were scattered throughout the land because of the massacre, but there's a blessing in disguise because they were also Aaron's lineage, and they were priests. So they had priests scattered throughout the country, and their portion was the Lord, and they lived off of the sacrifices, partial of the sacrifices that came. So even when we mess up, God still, there's consequences, but there still can be hidden blessings. All right. I want to end with this. Complacency. It wasn't finished yet. The work wasn't done. The people didn't possess the land. I can think of it in a couple different ways here. One is personal, where it's when we become a believer in Jesus Christ, he takes our heart of flesh a heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He takes us from the dominion of darkness and he put us in the kingdom of the son he loves. Nothing can change us. Nothing can snatch us out of that. We are new creatures in Christ, but we're not perfect. We still fight with the flesh, right? So those can be little battlegrounds of areas that we fight and we have to possess and we have to submit those areas of our life to Christ. But I want to also say this on a broader scope, what God thinks of complacency. Because we live in foreign territory. This isn't our home. Our home's in paradise. And until the fullness of the Gentiles come about and Jesus takes us home, there's work to do. This is not the time to be complacent. And I think the church in America has become very, very complacent. We don't want to be bothered We can hear about what's happening to Christians around the world, persecution, higher than it's ever been before. We can read about what they're doing and taking away our rights or whatever, you know. We're we're going down a slippery slope. It's not the time to be complacent. You want to know what God thinks of complacency? For one thing, in Luke uh, 18, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Revelations 3 the letters. 14 is the letter 
to the church of Laodicea. This is us. I know your works, and you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich and I have prospered and I, I, I have need of nothing, but realizing that you are wretched and pity, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. These are letters written to God's people. I want you to get that. They're not written to pagan people. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may have it rich with white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and you can whatever. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. Now, I hate to burst some of your bubbles out there, but that verse and that picture of Jesus standing at the door knocking is not knocking on a sinner's heart. It is knocking on the church that's become complacent. The church that doesn't worship God, the church that just when they come together, they worship the band or they worship the building or they worship their works out there. And Jesus is saying, let me in, let me in. Time is running short. The work is not done. We have got to live for Christ and the gospel. And if we are complacent, sin is going to thrive. I got heated on that, but it's a good point. (laughs) God, we thank you that your word is still relevant, so true. We just ask you, Holy Spirit, to forgive us for our complacency, for our attitude of not wanting to be bothered, and set our hearts on fire again for the love of you. Purify us, help us to walk holy because you are holy, and let us be your ambassadors to glorify you in the name of Christ. Amen.